you would be our vision, that our minds would be stayed on you. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. What a privilege to be able to sing. What a prayer that is, that he would be our heart's affection, uh, the only treasure that we seek. What a prayer. Thank you, Luke, and the rest of the team for leading us in worship through song this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. I have found over the last week that one of my least favorite things in the world is plumbing. Uh, Those of you who know, we've been doing some remodeling with our floors and with our vanities. A couple of you actually helped do some demo work, which I am eternally grateful for you for doing that because I couldn't have done it myself. And when we installed the vanities, uh, we were trying to do the plumbing. And it's, it seems like all of my expertise in the days of Lincoln Logs and Legos should come in handy where you just put the pieces together, screw the thing on, and you're good to go. And so that's what I did. And uh, I've done this enough times that I know to put a towel down underneath because there's drips all over the place. I don't know where they're coming from, why we even have pipes when there's going to be drips out of the pipes, but there's a leaks coming. So... I get under the vanity, which this one is the one that's in my daughter's bathroom, and if you've been in that one, you know that I can barely fit in that little bathroom, much less inside the vanity, so God did not make my body to be a plumber to fit into those tight spaces. So I am trying as best I can to find the leak, to see where it's coming from, and then with a happy heart, just go, I'll go to Lowe's, I'll get the part that I need, I'll come back and we'll be good to go. Put the new part in, turn the water on. The leak still happens in the same exact spot. So I go back to Lowe's. I take a picture. I show the picture to the guy at Lowe's. He says, yeah, here's the part that you need. Great. Now my problem solved. Go back. 13 trips to Lowe's later, and I still have the exact same leak in the exact same spot. And I don't know why it's leaking. And I've tried every single which way to fix the leak, and it's not working. Moral of the story, plumbing is not my friend. That is just not something that I enjoy doing. With much tenacity, I did in the span of five days what a real plumber would be able to do in about five minutes. So I did, I finished the job, I got it done. It's a usable sink, so you guys can come over and use it. Praise the Lord. But as I'm lying on the ground with my back hurting and my hands bleeding, I was thinking about Daniel chapter 6. Because... We come to a very familiar section of scripture, Daniel in the lion's den. It's familiar to a lot of non-believers. And right off the bat, we have to ask the question, why is this passage here? What is Daniel doing by giving us a very similar passage to what we already saw in Daniel chapter 3? Threat of a king, God's righteous saints decide to stand against the king's wishes and commands with the threat of death against them. God protects them, and the king praises Yahweh. Very familiar passage. So why does Daniel choose, out of the 70-plus years that he's been in captivity and all of the experiences that he has to choose from, why does he bring this into the story now? And here's where the connection was made for me, working on the plumbing issue in my bathroom. Try as I wanted to, I did so many different options with so many different pipes, with so many different ways of fixing the problem, and the problem never changed. And I I think that Daniel wants us to see the exact same thing. 
We have a, a completely new regime. We have a new king. We have a new empire. We have a new ruling authority. We have new enemies. We have new bad guys. And yet nothing has changed. Try as the world would want to place this pipe here, do this here. God's sovereignty is unchanging. He is king on the throne and there's nothing that any human authority can do to thwart his plans or to knock him off of his kingdom, off of his throne. Why is this here? Babylon is gone. Persia is now ruling. Remember October 12th, 539 BC, Medo-Persia takes over Babylon. The whole world has been turned upside down. But that doesn't affect the believer's life one bit. Daniel knows. New king. He's been through two of them, and now here's the third. We've been through Nebuchadnezzar. We've been through Belshazzar. Now we've got Darius. We've got three kings. We've seen the exact same thing with the other two kingdoms. Nothing different is going to be happening with a third kingdom. And everything is still going according to God's plan. God's will is being done. Daniel chapter 6 is very uh, parallel and similar to Daniel 1 and 3. And it's included to remind us that a new regime or even new circumstances altogether do nothing to automatically bring relief from our trials and from our struggles. As one commentator says, Daniel 6 is a necessary reminder that the life of faith must be lived to the very end and that earlier victories and rescues cannot be taken as guarantees of absence of future crises. God's sovereign over everything that's happening, including the persecution that's going to come to his people through the use of malicious and unjust laws. God's sovereign over that. He's been in control from Daniel chapter 1. He's still in control in Daniel chapter 6, and he will always be in control to the end of time. Daniel is an older man at this time. We know that he was taken in 605 B.C., and we said he was probably around 15 years old when he was taken, so that means he was born in 620 B.C. And we know that chapter 6 is opening somewhere around 539 B.C. and potentially beyond, so he's at least in his early 80s. He's been serving faithfully in Babylon for 70 years, and as we come to the end of the narrative portion of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6 is the end of the stories, the narratives, and then we're going to move into chapter 7 to prophecy. As we come to the end of the narratives, this is the last story that Daniel's going to give us, a very familiar one. And he's going to live up to his own name by reminding us that God is the judge. That's what Daniel means. God is the judge. Leave the results to him. Let him be the one who decides what's going to happen to you. You just worship him and do what is right. So... With that, by way of introduction, let's read Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, and then we will see in these verses three very clear principles given to us from Daniel on how we must live our lives as aliens and strangers in this world. Let's read Daniel 6, verses 1 through 15. It seemed good to Darius that he set 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because an extraordinary spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. 
Then the commissioners and satraps began seeking to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to matters of the kingdom. But they were not able to find any ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king. And they said this to him, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors have counseled together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who seeks to make a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the written document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the written document. That is the injunction. And when Daniel knew that the written document was signed, he entered his house. Now, his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement. And they found Daniel seeking to make a petition and making supplication before his God. And they came near and they said before the king concerning the king's injunction, did you not sign an injunction that any man who seeks to make a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king answered and said, the word is certain according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of those exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but he keeps seeking to make his petition three times a day. Then, as soon as the king heard this word, he was greatly distressed within himself, and he set his mind on saving Daniel, and even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to deliver him. Then these men came by agreement to the king, and they said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians, and that no injunction or statute which the king established may be changed. Father, we come to a familiar portion of your word, but we want to see it with fresh eyes. We want to read it as if we were reading for the very first time, hearing this story that many of us grew up in Sunday school listening to, God, we want to be stirred in our affections for Christ. We want to learn from Daniel's example, yes, but we want Christ to be the hero, as Daniel would want. He wants you to be our hero, not Daniel. So, Father, I pray that you would guide our time, that you would enable us to see exactly what it is that we are supposed to see and prepare our hearts even now for our day of reckoning when we, like Daniel, will be in a place where we have to decide between obeying you or obeying the laws of the land. Father, I pray that we would just be infused with a, a sense of perseverance and strength, but that we would always have a spirit of gentleness, meekness, kindness, and compassion. 
Holy Spirit, open our eyes now to behold wonderful things from your word. Conform us into the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Three main sections in Daniel 6, 1 through 15. Three main principles that Daniel gives us here for how we are to live as aliens and strangers in the world. We are not home, right? Our home is in a heavenly kingdom. We are citizens of another world. And so we are not home. So how do we live as strangers in this world when the world around us is trying to press us into their mold as hateful sinners against God? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? Three main points, three main principles. Number one, honor God in how you live differently than the world. Honor God in how you live differently than the world. If you are going to live as an exile and a stranger uh, away from your heavenly citizenship, uh, away from our kingdom that we're longing for but we're not there yet, if we're going to live here as exiles, what must we do in order to live differently and to live in a way that shows forth the glory of God? Number one, honor God in how you live differently than the world. This is verses one through three. It seemed good to Darius that he set up these 120 satraps over the kingdom. So we meet another new king, a guy by the name of Darius. So we've met Nebuchadnezzar, we've met Belshazzar, and now we're meeting a man by the name of Darius. And Darius, there's a there's an, an issue here, and so I want to just take two minutes to talk about the historical understanding of who this man is. We did this with Belshazzar, we have to do this with Darius, and then once we're done with Darius, we're done with all the kings. So we've we're, got all the kings out of the way here. There's three main options as to who this man is. Who is Darius? There's three main options. Number one, the world would tell you he's not a real person. The world would tell you he's made up. And the reason why the world would say that is because we have found, to date, no extra-biblical evidence of this man named Darius. We have no uh, archaeological evidence. We have no inscriptions. We have nothing that would say we have a Darius ruling and reigning in the province of Babylon when Persia takes over. Now, I would stop right there and say, we had the same issue with Belshazzar, right? Up until the mid-1800s, we had the same thing with Belshazzar, and then once an archaeological discovery was made, it proved the Bible was true. So uh, I would say that could easily happen in the case of Darius as well. So I obviously wouldn't take number one. I don't think anything in the Bible is uh, make-believe or made up. Second option is that Darius is a governor. He's a governor that the king of Persia, the king by the name of Cyrus who is the most well-known title given to this man, Cyrus, he establishes uh, a guy by the name of uh, Gubaru or Gabrius, who is given the title of Darius, and he's the governor in the province of Babylon. That's a possibility. So Darius is not a reference to Cyrus, the king of Persia. It's a reference to a governor. The third option is that Darius and Cyrus are interchangeable names. Uh, Cyrus, the guy that uh, allows Nehemiah to go back and to build the walls in Jerusalem with the exiles. That's this man. I believe that that's who this is. It's a title for a king. Darius is the title for a king. Uh, you, you'll see uh, Cyrus the Persian, Darius the Mede. Cyrus the Persian, Darius the Mede. That's because Cyrus had a, uh, a Persian father. He had a, a mother who was from the Medes, the descendants of the Medes. And in a Jewish mindset, you're going to get your heritage and uh, genealogical record from the mom's side. So it makes sense that Daniel would be saying, this is Darius the Mede, because this is Cyrus' mother's lineage. 
and it's Darius the Mede. Darius is also a title that we have found for other individuals that ruled and reigned, kind of like a Pharaoh title or a Herod title. There were many Herods. There were also many uh, Dariuses or Darii, I guess. I don't know how you say that. Uh, there were a lot of different Dariuses in the world at that time, different kingly titles. Um, in fact, in Daniel chapter 6, if you go down to verse 28... It says, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the kingdom of Darius and in the kingdom of Cyrus the Persian. Kingdom of Darius, the kingdom of Cyrus. And so it looks like those are two different individuals. In, in Aramaic, it's very clear that those are the same person. Uh, some of your translations might say, even in. It's something in grammar called apposition where you're saying, this is this person. So it's saying literally, Darius, who is Cyrus the Persian? And if you have any questions about this, we won't turn there, but just write down 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 26. This is, it's the exact same construction in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 26. There's one king that is given two names, and the two names are given just like this, where king name number one and king name number two, even in. In chapter 11, if you go to chapter 11, just one more place to look at. Chapter 11, verse 1, now I, Daniel, in the first year of Darius the Mede, again, Cyrus the Persian, Darius the Mede, two different descendants, uh, two different genealog genealogical records, heritages going through uh, to Cyrus or Darius. In my Bible, it says, now I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, there are two ancient sources, including the Septuagint, that replace Darius the Mede with Cyrus's name, interchanging Darius and Cyrus. So, all that to say, who is this Darius? I think quite simply, it's Cyrus. I think it's a title. could be a dynastic title. It could be his uh, median descent title. It also just could be the way that he's being described um, in chapter 11, verse 1, as Darius, the one who's the lineage from the Medes, Cyrus, the one who's the lineage from the Persians, the same person, different names, different titles. I think it's the same individual. And maybe just like Belshazzar, we're just waiting for a discovery that's going to clearly define why these two names are given to this one individual. So if any of you want to pursue the occupation of Indiana Jones, go be an archaeologist, go find this discovery, and then I won't have to take two minutes of our time to talk about it anymore in the next time I preach. So this man, Darius, otherwise known as Cyrus, takes 120 satraps over the kingdom. Satrap, literally, it means in Aramaic, a protector of the kingdom. And these people would protect, they're kind of like governors or presidents. They're helping to solve problems and bring uh, charge and rule over the whole kingdom. And over them, verse 2, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them. So you've got 120 satraps with Daniel and two other guys over, commissioners over those 120 satraps. And there's a specific reason given, that the king might not suffer loss. That literally just means Darius doesn't want to lose any taxes. He's given taxation to the people. He doesn't want to lose any money. And so he wants to make sure that the people he appoints to collect that money are impervious to corruption. And that's Daniel. Daniel is a mature man who will not be corrupted by any political gain. And here, as one commentator says, we begin Daniel 6 with a miracle because we have a squeaky clean, incorruptible politician, which that never happens. And here, Daniel is given... Uh, he's third in line, basically, he's, or fourth in line, but he's told by the king, verse 3, we're told that the king is planning to set him over the entire kingdom. So he's going to be right under Darius. So Darius and then Daniel. 
And the reason why is given to us in verse 3, and I think that this is fascinating. He's distinguishing himself, verse 3, because an extraordinary spirit was in him. An extraordinary spirit. What, what does that mean? Some of your Bibles might say excellent spirit. It can mean his godliness. It can mean his holiness. But this word is also used of non-believers. It's used of pagans who can have an extraordinary spirit in the way that they go about living their life. So it's not just godliness. It's more than that in the sense of how you live your life. Here's what it means. Daniel's attitude, his discipline, his work ethic, his consistency, his gentleness, all of those things were set apart from everyone around him. What makes him stand out is the fact that he does his job better than anyone around him. I love that. That's why I say, point number one, what is Daniel teaching us here? If you want to live differently in this world, just be the best at what you do. Do your job better than anyone around you and let that work ethic do the talking of how you honor and glorify God. We used to say that all the time when I was playing sports. It's a common thing to have trash talk happen when you're playing sports. Your, your opponent starts uh, saying mean things about you, right? Hurtful things about your family and your mom and how you're such a bad player. And some people get really mad about that. I never really cared about that. Talk all you want. I'll just beat you with my game, right? I'll beat you. That's what I would always say. You can talk all you want. Look at the scoreboard. We're killing you, right? Talk all you want. Let my play, let my game do the talking. That's what Daniel's doing. Talk all you want about your empire. Talk all you want about what you're doing. I will show you. I'll prove to you by my life. I'm going to work harder than you. I'm going to be better than you. I'm going to do my job heartily as unto the Lord. I'm going to honor him. And as I live to honor God, it's going to show in the way that I work. Remember the Jews around Daniel, as they receive this manuscript, they're going to be wondering, how do we live as exiles in this world? How do we live when we are separate from Israel, when we're not in our hometown? What are we supposed to do with Babylon and Persia? What are we supposed to do with Greece when it shows up in Rome? What are we supposed to do with these pagan nations that are ruling us? Should we just completely uh, pull back, remove ourselves from the equation completely? Should we start a commune? Should we be monks? Should we not get involved at all? Should we get involved? What do we, what do, we do? I think what Daniel is showing us is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 29, verse 7, where Jeremiah tells us, and it's God's word saying, seek the welfare of the city. Live in Babylon. Plant your roots in Babylon and do the best you can to serve the people around you. We can be tempted to hide in a bubble. And Daniel says, no, get out there and serve. Get involved. Serve well. Be the best at your job. Alistair Begg says, he was really good at his job. As Christians, we shouldn't have to walk around our workplace with a large steady Bible under our arms for people to know that we're followers of Jesus. You don't need bumper stickers on your car declaring your allegiance to Jesus. What's far more compelling is to be faithful, trustworthy, and reliable. Show up on time, work hard, finish the job, be excellent at what you do, be the best at what you do. Just work hard. And when you live a godly life, honoring to the Lord it will look different than the world. You'll be noticed. You'll be noticed for how you work. And that'll be a good thing for s some people as they notice you. Man, that guy works hard. And it can also be a bad thing. Some people take notice of you and they won't like that. They really won't like that. And that leads to point number two. Verses four through nine. 
If we're going to live as exiles and strangers in this world, we need to, number one, honor God in how we live differently than the world. And number two, we need to understand that the world will always hate us. The world will always hate you. Understand the world will always hate you. This is verses four through nine. Brian Chapel says, holiness is a risky business. Society may praise idealism, but it rarely tolerates living those ideals. So if you say, I'm going to have a good work ethic, I'm not going to uh, slouch on the job, I'm not going to be lazy, I'm going to work hard, and you do your work heartily as I'm the Lord, some people are going to say, you're working too hard. Stop, you're making us look bad. Some people won't like your honoring of the Lord in the way that you work. Maybe Daniel potentially is a whistleblower for the people that are trying to steal taxes, that are under him, that are trying uh, to take away from Darius's money. Verse 4, then the commissioners and the satraps began seeking to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to the matters of the kingdom. Maybe they just didn't like the fact that here's this 80-year-old uh, Jew, captive exiled Jew, who's taking our job. We don't like that. Get out of here. We don't want you to have our job. We want our jobs. And so they want to find a way to have grounds of accusing him. But it says in verse 4, they were unable to find any ground inasmuch as he was faithful. No negligence of corruption was to be found in him. So again, this doesn't have to be godliness. Obviously, it's honoring the Lord through the way that you work, but it's just hard work. I don't even know if Daniel said anything about Yahweh. He just didn't let corruption enter into his attitude and his spirit as he did his job. He was faithful. And so they say, we're never going to find anything wrong with this guy. This is the definition, by the way, of above reproach. Above reproach means if somebody wants to find something to accuse you, they can't. Nothing sticks. No accusation would ever stick. You're there in your workplace to serve Jesus, to put God on display for others. So my question to you, I think Daniel's posing, is what would others think about your faith as a result of the quality of your work, your integrity, your attitudes, and the way that you display yourself at your job? Oh, that verse 5 could be true of us, would be said of us. As they find nothing, they say, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him in regard to the law of his God. The only way that we can find something wrong with him is if we find a law or we make a law that will go against the law of his God because he follows his God so closely. Our enemies should not be able to find an accusation to use against us. And so, just like Daniel, if you want to get somebody fired, the easiest place that you go is their performance in their workplace. But since that's not working here for Daniel, they're going to go to his character. And as they go to his character, they realize it's flawless. And so they have to trap him based off of the way that he lives before God. The trap is entirely based on Daniel's character. They know Daniel's character. And so they're going to spring this trap on Daniel that's entirely based on what they know about who Daniel is. Reminds me of David and, and Uriah. You remember when uh, David uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba, and in doing so, Bathsheba's pregnant. So David brings Uriah back uh, from the battlefield and says, um, enjoy your wife and be with her and don't have to worry about being on the battlefield. And Uriah says, no, I can't do that. And so uh, David's next plan to cover up his sin is to get Uriah killed. And so he sends a letter to the general of the army to say, hey, the next time you're in a battle, go all out into the front, and then everybody pull back and leave Uriah there to die. And you remember, who gives the general that letter? It's Uriah. 
David writes the letter, gives it to Uriah, and says, can you take this to the general? And if Uriah was not filled with integrity, was not trustworthy, he would have opened that letter, he would have seen the report, he would have seen the order and the command, and he would have said, no, I'm not giving this to the general. But instead, because he's so full of integrity, he knows this is a a command from the king to the general, I am not allowed to see this. And so his own death sentence is made possible because of his integrity. The same thing is true about Daniel. And so they see there's no way we can get Daniel in trouble unless we find accusations against the way that he lives before Yahweh. So they go before the king, verse 6. These commissioners and satraps came by agreement. I love that Aramaic word, by agreement. It's literally in concert or harmony. This is a conspiracy. They decided this outside of the, the walls of the kingdom, and they go inside with a conspiracy ready to be leveled against Daniel. And they say, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials, the governors, have counseled together. Now, right off the bat, we've got a lie. Number one, probably not all 120 people were present to be able to talk about this. This is probably only a select few. But number two, even if all 120 people were there, we know there's one guy who would not agree to this, right? Daniel's not going to say, this is a good idea. So this is a lie. And in their lying, they employ another form of lying, which is flattery. They say, we think that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who seeks to make a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. So nobody can pray to God and nobody can talk to a man. You can't make a petition to a man. What does that mean? Does that mean you couldn't go ask your friend for a shovel? No. What that means is you cannot use another human being as a priest to get to God. So basically what they're saying is, you, King Darius, are going to act as God. You are God and you are the mediator to God because you're acting as God. But notice how stupid sin is. Listen to how foolish sin is. Number one, there's flattery going on and Darius is going to buy it, hook, line, and sinker. But number two, if you ever say to somebody, you can be God for 30 days and at the end of 30 days, we'll let you, you know, stop being God. When do you stop being God? If you're God, you're God. You don't stop. There's no time stamp to the end of God being God, right? So the the foolishness of this being given to Darius is so reprehensible. He should have seen through this. But because they are flattering him, I think he buys into it and says, yeah, this would be great. In essence, what they're saying is, let's test the loyalty. Since we just took over Babylon, and there's a lot of Babylonians there, and there's also a lot of Jews that have been exiled there, let's test their loyalty, Let's make a law that will make you be God and so they can't pray to anybody else. Let's test the loyalty of the new captives. And as I said, Darius falls for it. Uh, Why does he fall for it? I think the flattery for sure. I think also because of his own religious beliefs, his own inclusivity. He's okay with many gods being there, so why can't I just be God today? That's fine. He's pluralistic in his own mindset. So, hey, the Babylonian kings would name themselves as God. I'd like to try that out for a month. I'll be God too. And so he decides to make this into a law. Verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction. Sign the written document so that it may not be changed. Do you remember this from the book of Esther? Once a law, according to the Medes and the Persians, once a law is put into writing... It cannot be revoked. You have to make another law that's going to counteract it if you want to try and do that, but you can't revoke that law. Once it's been written down, it's a law and it's permanent. 
And so they, they say, Let's, it won't be revoked, verse 8. And Darius signs it, verse 9. He signs the injunction. And he does so... There, there's a, a uniqueness to the way that the, the Persians took over a country. When Babylon took over, you remember in Daniel chapter 1, when Babylon took over, they said to their captives, you need to become us. Right? We're going to rename you. You can't worship your gods. You need to worship our gods. You need to become thoroughly Babylonian. The Persians weren't like that. The Persians said, just give us our money. We, we want our taxes. Give us our taxes. And just be nice to each other. But keep your name. Notice Daniel's name hasn't been changed. He's not Belteshazzar. He's, he's just Daniel. You can be whoever you want to be. You can believe whatever you want to believe. That's why there's an inclusivity to this. There's a pluralism to this. And what the, the high-ranking officials are saying is we need to narrow that plurality down and make it only possible for one person to be worshipped as God. We can't let this plurality exist anymore. And so that's what they do. And in doing so, they bring a sense of, a very real sense of judicial persecution to Daniel. It doesn't matter where you live in this world. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know biblically the world will always hate you. It's just how are they going to go about trying to attack you? Some places, they just do that physically. They put you in prison and they kill you. It's not so here, not yet at least. I think here in America, similar to in Persia, it would be judicial persecution. It would be persecution that would be brought about in law form. There are two main causes of judicial persecution. Number one, jealousy over the success of God's people. And number two, a resentment over the integrity of God's people. And we see both here in Daniel. And when somebody desires to make a law that will counteract what God's word says, we're going to have to say with the disciples in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God and not man. I wonder if we have bought into a, a sense of kind of Persian lawmaking in our own understanding of laws. This is another sermon for another time, and I think we'll go there eventually. But I just wonder, just one brief little detour, if we tend to think in a Persian mindset that once a law is made, that's what is right. I think we tend to do this. We, we tend to think that what lawmakers say equals the final authority in the land. For instance, laws on abortion or laws on same-sex marriage. We go, well, that's the law of the land. That's the law. There's the law. But we forget there's God's law that's always higher than any law of the land. Always. Aristotle, who is not a believer, but he was helpful in talking about there's two main forms of laws. He, he calls it categorically natural law and positive law. Natural meaning the law that we just inherently know to be true, right? Don't murder somebody. You don't need a law to tell you that. that we know that that's not right. That's natural law. Because we are creatures under a creator, we know that a natural law, these are things that we should not do, and these are things that we should do. And then there's a category that he calls positive law. Not positive as in good versus negative, but positive as in given, added to you. It's given by lawmakers. So these are man-made laws. Positive laws are man-made laws. And Aristotle would say that where positive laws, man-made laws, where they correspond to natural laws, you have good, just, right, righteous laws. But he would say wherever positive laws do not correspond with natural laws, where they contradict natural law, then they are unjust 
and they should not be followed. And that's a pagan man saying that. How much more so when we know these natural laws are not just given to us in some, hey, we're creatures and these are the right things to do. They're given to us by God himself. And therefore, if God's given us those laws, then it doesn't really matter what other people would say if they contradict the laws that God has given. We have to respectfully, politely say we cannot do that. We've, we've seen this in our own country. We've seen this in our own country when it comes to unjust laws of slavery, of segregation, of racial dynamics. We've seen this where the positive laws made by man contradict and conflict the natural laws that God has given. And we need to stand up in those moments and say we can't do that. Be the you know, Will, William Wilberforces of the day. And it's always better to obey God than man, always. But, detour aside, don't miss the point of this passage, which is unbelievers and their governments have, always have, and always will continue to use judicial persecution against Christians. In cultures where rulers can't make decisions to just throw us into jail, they're going to find ways to navigate the laws to make it impossible to follow our God. Daniel 6 is a reminder that the world hates us. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised. It's something that we've always known to be true biblically, but maybe we've refused to believe it. We don't like the idea of it. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, says that the world is filled with people who are hateful and hating one another. John 15, verse 18 through 19, if the world hates you, Jesus says, it's because they hated me first. I've called you out of the world, and that's specifically why they hate you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, Cain hated Abel because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 14, where Peter, I think, uses an allusion to the fiery furnace. Do not be surprised when a fiery ordeal overtakes you. We should expect it. Similar to how our study's been in Ecclesiastes. We should expect this cyclical working of the world. We should expect to be let down because the world was never designed to prop us up with satisfaction. So too, we should be expecting the persecution. It's going to take different forms. But if we, if we are going to live as believers, as aliens, as strangers, as exiles in this world, we need to honor God in everything we do and live differently than the world. And then we need to understand the world's going to hate us. They're going to hate us. That leads to number three. That leads to point number three, verses 10 through 15. If we're going to live as aliens and strangers in this world, we need to worship God. Number three, worship God even though it will cost you. Worship God even though it will cost you. Not may, it might cost you. No, it will. I don't know what degree it will, but it will cost you because the world hates you and because you're going to live differently than the world. Just worship the Lord even though you know it will cost you. Verse 10, how is Daniel going to respond? I love this section. This section just blew my mind this week as I was looking through this. Number one, for some reason, I've heard this story so many different times. For some reason, I didn't put two and two together that Daniel knew that the signing of the document had happened. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the written document was signed, this wasn't that they came and say, they said, hey, in the middle of the night, we made a, an injunction. You weren't allowed to do this. You didn't know about it, but ha we got you. He knew that this had been signed, so he's aware of it. So my question is, what would I do if I knew this was happening? What would I do? 
Also, maybe, potentially, since he's in his 80s, maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are already gone. Maybe they're already with the Lord. Maybe Daniel is, quote-unquote, all alone. He doesn't have people around him who have gone through these experiences. What would you do? Would you just say, I'm going to pray in my head? God's omnipresent, he's omniscient, I can just pray in my head. By the way, I don't think it would have been wrong for Daniel to do this. This is where I think it differs from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. You know, if you say, we'll bow down to the statue in honor to the statue, but in our hearts we're not going to. No, that's still really bad. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't bow down to a golden statue. But I think here, it would be very easy to say, you know what, I'm going to keep praying, but I'm going to pray with discretion and discernment away from the window. I don't think that that would have been wrong. I, I think you can prove that from the life of the Apostle Paul. He's captured in Jerusalem, and, and then they find a way to lower him down through a basket through the walls and get him out. He doesn't say, no, 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 I'm going to wait here. He says, get me out. Jesus did that, right? Pick up stones to stone him. He's not like, hey, here it comes. Here we go. I'm ready. No, he says, excuse me, I need to leave because this isn't how I'm dying. I think it's totally fine to leave persecution, to flee it, if possible. It's also fine to do what Daniel's doing. So I don't think it would have been wrong for Daniel to say, I'm not going to pray by my window. So my question is, why does he? If there's a way to keep praying, but not in a public sense where you could be captured, why does he do it this way? I can't prove it, but I think that he knew exactly what these conspirators were trying to do. He knew that they were after him. And he knew that they were questioning whether his confidence in his God was going to stand. I think Daniel knew this is a battleground. And they want to pressure me out of this. And I'm not going to let them do that. I'm going to show them that my trust in my God will enable me to continue praying and continue worshiping even if the law says I'm going to lose my life. For Daniel, this isn't just a ban on prayer. This is a ban on the first commandment. Worship the Lord alone. Are you going to bow the knee to Darius and the other satraps or are you going to bow the knee to God alone? And Daniel's going to say, no, I'm not going to follow your laws. I'm not going to follow your injunctions. One commentator says, this shows us that the dangers that we don't see are generally much greater than the dangers that we do see. When we watch Daniel being lowered into the lion's den, we hold our breath in fear and anticipation. Yet, by that point, the danger has already been overcome and the great fight has already been fought. It is indeed a wondrous miracle that God preserves one of his children in the lion's den. But it is no less a miracle that God's gracious hand saved Daniel when all of Persia, goaded on by Satan, attempted to pry apart those two aged hands tightly clasped in prayer. So he's going to say, no, I can't do that. And I'm going to continue doing what I've done. But notice what it says. He enters his house, his In his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. This is massively important for us. This is so instructive. Because what does Daniel do when he finds out that this law has been put into place? What does he do? The answer, 
he doesn't do anything different than he always does. He doesn't change a thing. You think about what would happen if somebody told us, you're not allowed to pray. I, I think, especially in our circles, let's, let's please be honest with ourselves. I think in our circles we go, well, we're going to pray harder, right? You're telling me I can't pray? I'm going to pray harder. I'm going to pray in your face. Daniel doesn't do that. He just goes, oh, well, I'm going to keep doing exactly what I've been doing. He's not rude. He's not in any sense, let's stick it to the man, right? This is Persia's stinky government, and we're going to show them who's boss. No. He's not flaunting anything. He's not showboating anything. They say, you're not allowed to pray? And he goes, okay. Just happy, content, 80-year-old Daniel. Back to it. Gets down on his knees, a sign of submission, self-humbling. He doesn't have to do that, but he does it, because he's always been doing it, just on his knees in prayer before the Lord. Some might say, well, outward signs can be empty, so that's why I don't get on my knees when I pray, because I don't want it to be an empty outward sign, an external sign, if my heart isn't bowing the knee before the Lord. Yes, that's possible that outward signs can be empty, but that doesn't mean that we just shouldn't participate in external signs at all, just because that's the potential. Yes, it's external. But to say, well, I'm doing it in my heart, so I don't need to do any externals. Just try that in any relationship. Try, husbands, try it. I'm guessing you have. I'm guessing you've tried this in your marriage before, where you go, oh, I love my wife. In my heart, I love my wife. I don't have to show any external signs of that love because I love her in my heart, and she knows that. How is that working out for you, right? It's not going to work out well. Daniel says, I am a servant, and I want to claim a posture of humility before my king. I love the way one commentator says it. We don't live in a spiritual democracy. It's a monarchy. God's not our butler. We don't present demands to him. We're always beggars at the throne of grace. And though it is a throne of grace, it is still a throne. And so he bows the knee before Yahweh as he had been doing, the same way that he's always been doing. He continues kneeling as he had been previously doing. Notice his prayer life is planned three times a day. It's not spontaneous. I'm guessing he has spontaneous times of prayer throughout the day, but he has planned times of prayer. And so he just maintains his holy habit. Nothing changes in his life. If he changed his habits, they would know that they've gotten the best of him. And it would spoil his testimony before them. And so to Daniel, changing his holy habits is worse than losing his life. Continuing his holy habits is more important to him than continuing his life. And so he just continues. I'm going to obey God. I also love this because think of how in Daniel chapter 4, remember there was a little bit of a struggle with Daniel of how to share before King Nebuchadnezzar what the dream meant. There was a little bit of a sense of dread the same word for fear, the same word for being terrified that Nebuchadnezzar was over the dream, it says of Daniel, about giving the interpretation of the dream. There's no sense of being terrified here. He's lived 80 years. He knows God is faithful. And maybe he's fine to go home to be with him. Nothing's going to change. He was struggling a little bit in Daniel chapter 4. He's not struggling now. Brothers and sisters, God will strengthen you and put steel in your spine for the days ahead. You might not feel it now, 
but it will happen as you grow your roots down deep into his word and into his character and into his sovereignty. So he prays, and it appears that they catch Daniel praying at the noon hour. Verse 11, these men came by agreement. They found Daniel seeking to make a petition, making supplication before God. Literally, it's uh, that word making a petition. It's asking for grace. We don't know exactly what he's praying. We're not given that. But remember, we said um, when we started this series, the book of Psalms, almost all the Psalms have already been written. So I wonder, you could just write down Psalm 57. I wonder if he's praying Psalm 57, which says, Be gracious to me, O God, for in you I take refuge. In the shadow of your wings I take refuge. And then I think it's verse 6 or verse 7. It literally says, I am among a den of lions. I wonder if he's praying that prayer, saying, well, this is where it might end. But God, be, be gracious. He's praying towards Jerusalem, uh, according to what Solomon had said in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46 through 51, where we are to, uh, the, the exiles were to pray facing Jerusalem, knowing that's where we're going to go back. God's going to be faithful and bring us back. And they were also to pray for the captors, the people that took them captive, that God would be merciful to them. So verse 12, they come near, they say, hey, king, you signed this injunction. Daniel's breaking this. Verse 13, Daniel, who is the one, who's one of the exiles from Judah, listen to how they're trying to make Daniel look terrible. He's one of those slaves from Jerusalem, from Judah, and he pays no attention to you, king, or to the injunction you signed. They're demeaning him. They're questioning his loyalty. They're saying he's not one of us. Maybe Daniel doesn't consider you, the king, significant enough to pay attention to. You would expect the king, the next verse in verse 14, you would expect him to be distressed that one of his own, one of his uh, government officials is denying what he's requested, is disobeying his request. You'd expect him to be distressed about that. But he's not distressed because Daniel's defying him. He's distressed because Daniel's now going to be sentenced to die. Apparently built into this law was the sentence that it would be carried out the same day. Verse 14 as soon as the king heard this word, he was greatly distressed within himself, and he set his mind on saving Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to deliver him. Daniel's totally fine with his decision. Darius is freaking out. Darius is working throughout the night. Darius is more traumatized than Daniel. Darius is worried sick about Daniel, but he has no ability to save him. I think that's a, a main point of this chapter. Rulers may not be hostile to you, but even if they favor you, they are still just as hopeless as everyone else to help you. That's why Psalm 146, verses 3 through 4 says, do not put your trust in nobles in whom there is no salvation. There is no salvation. And only in God can we find salvation. So, Verse 15, these men came by agreement to the king and they said, now know this, O king, it's a law of the Medes and the Persians. We know you're trying to get out of this, but no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. There's no getting out of this. Daniel must be thrown into the lion's den. And you know what happens next. We'll pick that up next week. But as we come to the end of these 15 verses, we see clearly by Daniel's example, what are we to do to live as strangers and aliens and exiles in this world? Number one, we must honor God and how we live differently. Number two, we must understand that the world will hate us. That shouldn't be a surprise to us. 
But number three, we must worship God even though it will cost us. We must worship him even though it's going to cost us. So how do we wrap this up? Just quickly. Three main considerations as we walk away. Number one, prayer. Prayer. We're told as we um, get preparation for ministry and for preaching, if you ever want to convict people, just preach on prayer and evangelism because no one does that enough, right? Just preach on those two topics and everyone will be convicted. I don't think the main point of this chapter is prayer, but it's a, it's a part of it. And I think it's a, it's a very important place to stop and ask a question. Would it make any substantial difference in your life if prayer were banned in America for the next 30 days? Would it make any substantial difference? Is prayer that important to you? When do you pray? Daniel didn't pray spontaneously alone only. He prayed planned times during the day. I think it would be a great place to stop and to ask, what does your prayer life look like? When was the last time you got on your knees pleading before the Lord in submission to him? Number two, persecution. Number two, persecution is seen in this chapter, and I believe superficial, contemporary Western Christianity will never be able to survive these kinds of experiences. Those who, live, who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul says. It's going to happen. And we need to realize that those moments of crises do not create character, they reveal the character that's already there. So how are you preparing now for that moment? What are the disciplines in your life now? Because they're not just going to start when the trial happens. Times of crisis reveal truth about us, not creating truth in us. What are you doing today that's preparing you for that day? Christian character is more revealed in times of adversity than is forged. So today... Live out what Eugene Peterson calls the life of a disciple of Christ. It's just a long obedience in the same direction. Obey today. Finally, the third point of conclusion. Not only do we see a, a question of prayer and a question of persecution in our own lives, but finally, the answer is the power of Christ. Christ is the hero of the story. We see power, but it's not power in Daniel. We see power in Yahweh. Because Daniel is saying before the watching world that Yahweh is better than life itself. Let me die and be with him. And it's very much better in the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Look to the sovereign king. Look to the one who has paid the price for you to be forgiven of all your sins so that you can approach death with zero fear of what's going to happen on the other side. Yes, we should seek to pray more. Yes, we should seek to prepare for persecution, but never on our own strength. All of that power comes from Christ and Christ alone. Will you be like Daniel in that day? I can tell you, yes, you will, if you love Jesus today. Love Jesus today. Father, thank you so much for these precious verses that are just um, convicting powerful and yet Daniel isn't the hero he is doing heroic things but the hero is you our great God whose faithfulness from generation to generation is the same we can trust you we can cling to you we can hope in you we love you 
Teach us this morning to love you more. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together and just sing the first verse of Great is Thy Faithfulness.